Good morning. Are we good, Rob? Okay. I don't know why I have to ask. I'm very insecure when I, with these things. I, I'd rather just be speaking loud than I depend on a mic, but uh, this is what we do. That last hymn, what a wonderful hymn that is. It's, every line is so packed with theology. It's just, it's wonderful. It really is. You get a, a, a lesson in theology just with that each line and that song. Well, I hope you are enjoying this beautiful weather. Some of you are probably starting to curse it because of the humidity or heat, but I'm like those, I was thinking this morning, this is weird, but I'm, I'm, I'm like those beetles that they kind of live under the ground all winter and in the cold weather, and then when it gets warm, they just kind of come up and, and sprout up and that's what I feel like. I just, I come to life during this weather, you know, like that. So I guess I'm a beetle. I don't know what I am, but uh, let's pray and hopefully we'll uh, get something that we can walk away from and apply it to our life from God's word this morning. Father, you are such a gracious loving, good God. Lord, the word tells us that, Lord, you demonstrate your love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that love, perfect love, there was also perfect justice to balance that, Lord. You are an amazing God. Lord, may we truly just get a sense of who you are, Lord, so that me, we may worship you, Lord, as you reveal yourself to us, Lord. I pray you'd bless this time now, Lord. You would uh, help me to speak just your truth, not human opinions, not human wisdom, which is no wisdom at all, but the truth of the Scriptures, Lord. And may we not only hear it, may we put it to practice. May we apply these things, Father. We ask you'd come by the Holy Spirit now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to turn to 1 John again, we are in 1 John, and I'm I'm trying to give us an, kind of an, over, an overview of the book with some detail, but I don't, want to, I don't want to hang here for too long and take every verse under a microscope. As excellent as that is, sometimes I'm afraid we lose the whole picture. We, get, we see every little tree, but we miss the forest. And somehow I want us to see the forest here in this book. Uh, and put it all together. So far in 1 John, we've looked at John has spoken to them about doctrine and about morality. And there was good reason, if you remember what I said uh, originally, that there were heresies that were infecting the church. And amazingly, Paul, you know, 20 or 30, tw at least 25 years before, as he was leaving the church of Ephesus for the last time, he speaks to the elders of that church. 
and he reminds them, he says that, I know that when I leave here, remember he was there for several years, when I leave here, he says, that savage wolves are going to come in, into the flock. He says, and they're going to be right from within too. The biggest danger many times, we, we think of the outside attack on the church, but sometimes our greatest threat to us and our orthodoxy and our true faith is from within the church because it's there many times that false beliefs start to rise up like they were doing in this church. But this church, John is writing this to encourage them. He's not writing to them. To, he's not writing like when Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. John's not doing that. It's John in chapter 5, verse 13. If you recall, he says, the reason he writes this book, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that, he says, you might know that you have eternal life, that your sins are forgiven. So when John begins this book, this letter, he's not, he's not saying you better check and see if you're saved. He's trying to encourage them and let them know. He gives them tests of doctrine. He talks about the true Christ, all God, all man. He talks about the sin that is within them. Then he goes, he, he switches over to the moral issues and he talks about obedience. Those who know Christ walk with Christ, they obey Christ. Like Jesus said, the one who obeys my commands is the one who loves me, Jesus said. True faith shows itself in obedience. If you say, I really believe this, and then you do something else, well, th there's a there's a conflict there. Something doesn't add up. If you say, I really believe Jesus, then you should say, I want to follow Jesus. And that's where the change life. That's how one way you know if a person has really been converted. They can say, you know, I receive Christ. I believe Jesus. I, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, this and that. But how are they living? Is their life the same? Or have they moved away from the sinful things of life and have they moved to and it's not just salvation is not just you give up everything that's what people i used to love when people used to say well i used to curse and smoke and drink which is kind of silly stuff and it's it's not silly but it's not the main issue but i used to curse smoke and drink but then i became a christian so it sounds like okay i give up these things and poof now i belong to christ it's not like that it's also Growing in love for Jesus. Growing in love for His Word. Growing in love for His people. And what we're going to look at today is hating that which is opposed to God. And I said hate. I know today the big word is they're haters. You know, people are haters if they disagree with something. Well, the Bible says we are to hate that which is evil. How, and we'll, we'll look at that. I don't want to jump ahead. I'm going to... I want to start talking about it, but I, I do want to give you an overall picture here. So John goes through those things with the church, and what he's, again, is encouraging them, saying, you believe these things, right? You're a child of God. And then last week, if you remember, in, in chapter 2, verses 
12 through 14, John is writing to them to reassure them that no matter where you are as a Christian, if you're a child, he says, where you're lacking knowledge, where you really haven't grown in your understanding much of the Word of God, but your faith is in Christ and you've repented of your sins and you're still needing more, more uh, teaching, he says, you're still saved. He says if you are, he, he categorizes them as young, man, young men. He says, you're strong, he says, but why are they strong? He says, because the Word of God lives in you. These are people, these are Christians who now have not only said, I, I repent of my sins and my faith is in the work of Christ on the cross, but they've been gaining knowledge of God. They're learning about theology, correct theology, biblical theology. They're learning about Jesus. They're learning about what God says. And he says, you know, and you, he says, have opposed, you know, the evil one. He says, they're now stronger and they're able to resist all the temptations that come to us. Temptation every moment is coming from us. And not only from the world, where's our biggest battle? In my heart. By the way, in your heart too. I don't want to, I'm not going to stand alone on this one. You're, you're going to take some of the heat, let me tell you, that it's, that's our battle. We have these desires in us that still want to be expressed in sinful ways. We want gratification in there. That's the battle. But these men, he's saying, you know, young men, he says, you're strong because the word of God is in you. The psalmist said, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? Just so I can impress everybody and rattle off scriptures? No, he says, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. He's talking about the Lord. He says there's a purpose for learning Scripture. It's not just to impress your Christian friends or sound like, ooh, this guy's religious. It's nothing to do with that. It has to do with learning those Scriptures, letting them work within me, let the Holy Spirit apply them to my life through my heart, and in turn... I won't sin against God. My sanctification will grow. It's the idea of growing in sanctification, being separated from sin and more devoted to God himself. And John then he says, and I write to you fathers, he says. He's using that term not as just older men. It's for everyone, men, women in the church. He says, you have known him from who is from the beginning. He's, he's saying, you have a relationship with the eternal God. He says, your relationship is deep. And you will find the further, I should say, the closer you grow to God, the more worship becomes a part of your life. That's why by the time we, get, we look at the book of Revelation, you know, every other scene, they're falling down, it says, before God. It's not... It's not like some ritual you do in a church. It's okay, we rise, now we get down, we rise, up, down, up, down. Not that we shouldn't do that at times, I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not putting that down, but that's not why they're falling down on their faces. 
They're in awe. They have such a full knowledge of God. They're in heaven. They, they, they've been face to face with Christ. They, they understand more. They'll never understand. Even in heaven, we're never going to have full knowledge. How can we? We're, created. we're still a created being. You know, God is eternal. You know, his, the knowledge of him is unending. There's no, you don't put a limit on God. Just like we don't put a limit on his power or his knowledge. You know, but they, they fall down because they're in awe. They know who he is. We need that, don't we? We need to have a deeper sense of who God is. Because if we did, our worship would grow much deeper. It's not just a matter of the songs we pick or the mood of things. It's a matter of us in knowing who God is and encountering him and being absolutely moved to just want to... Oh, that's all you can do when you really get down to it. I, I always am amazed that in, in Revelation at John, the apostle, the close, probably the closest human being to, to Jesus. And yet, when he goes... Uh, some 60, almost 60, 50, 60 years later when he's on the Isle of Patmos and Christ appears to him, what does he do? He says, I fell down like one dead. He was in awe. This is the one who was pals with Jesus when Jesus came as the suffering servant. The man Christ Jesus. All God, but the man Christ Jesus. But then when he sees the glorified Christ... He goes down. All right, before I go any further, let's get back to our, let's get back to our message here. Uh, but so John is telling them, he says, fathers, he says, you have known him who is from the beginning, the eternal God. He said, so what is he saying? He's saying whether you're a babe in Christ, whether you're somewhere in the middle or whether you're a real mature Christian. And we're not talking about age. Remember that. We're talking about our relationship and understanding of God. He says, you're saved. You're all saved. And how do we know that? Well, if you look at verse 12, he says, I write to you, dear children. And remember, that word is technia. It's not it's not the word we usually think of as a little child. He uses that the in the next verse, padia. That's for a little child who's lacking knowledge and understanding and needs training. But this word is that word I told you. It means born ones. He's, he's including all those three categories, children, young men, and fathers. And he includes them all. He says, all of you, look what he says. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. He's assuring them. He's saying, no matter where you are on the advanced list of, of Christianity, of your walk with him, he says, you're, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life. Go back to 5.13. What does he say? He says, I write this. He said, why? Totally. So that you know that you have eternal life. So he's encouraging them here. And now we get to the next section, verse uh, 15 to 17. And I don't know whether we'll get through this all. This, you know, this is the kind of part we could, I'm very tempted to take one verse a week and do it. But I don't want to sit here too long. I, I, I feel like we're going to lose the flow of the book. So, 
Anyway, let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I'm reading without my glasses, and I'm thinking, it's a miracle. <laughs> but it's not. It's just I'm standing about 10 feet away from the, the, the reading here. So it's, if I stand back here, I can do the whole sermon. Okay, now... tells us not to love the world. Let's first get the, that our terms right here. Okay? The world here is not referring to the cosmos, the idea of the created ordered universe. He's not talking about trees and plants and cute little puppies and, and other uh, you know, things in this beautiful world. Let's face it, the world is beautiful. When God created it, what did he say in Genesis 1.31? When he was all finished, he said God saw that it was very good. Yes, it was marred by the sin of human beings, but when he created it, it was very good, and the earth is still very good. The universe is still very good. It's just that it's marred. It's been fallen. But... So we're not talking about that. We're not talking about, you know, not liking this planet. We're also not talking about not liking other people. All right? Remember when we're, it's not where in John 3.16, the most probably uh, common verse you could think of, for God so loved the world. He wasn't talking about trees and trees and people and I mean, he was talking about people. He's not talking about all those other things I talked about. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, people, you know, trees aren't whoever's, little puppies aren't whoever's, people, that whoever believes in his name, you know. Okay, that's where that world isn't part of this either. What he's referring to here is a system of evil a system that is fueled by Satan and carried out by his demons. It's a system that is based upon man's wisdom, which is no wisdom at all. Man's wisdom, man's philosophies, man's religions, all systems that are opposed to God, basically. You want an example of that? Just look at our world right now. Oh my goodness, what's happening? I, uh, I got to just take a moment. I think about the abortion controversy. How have we gotten to a point where we say it's legal to kill human life? That's evil. I'm sorry. Now I'm not saying we hate. I do not hate the women who go for abortions. I pity them. I want to pray for them. They need forgiveness from God. They need to repent 
and they can be forgiven. That's the good news. But the act of it, of abortion, and think about how the world treats it, how the, how, I'm going to use this as the world. It's abortion. What does it mean to abort something? I remember as a kid watching the, the NASA launches up the, for the, to go up to the moon and getting there. And it's something, oh, we're going to have to abort this flight. We're going to cancel it. We're going to terminate it. That's what abortion means. We're terminating the life of a child. We're doing it. It's not by God's, it's not by, you know, God choosing to terminate that, that pregnancy. It's a human being saying, I'm going to control the life of this person. And think about how sneaky the world does things. Back then, it was abortion. All of a sudden, it became pro-choice. It sounds a little easier, doesn't it? It's not, abortion is such a nasty term, but it's, it's pro-choice. Who's against letting people choose? You know, we're not a dictatorship. We're, we have a right to choose. And now think of where we come today. It's reproductive rights. <laughs> how can you deny somebody's rights? You see how the world system works? It very sneakily just changes things. And it gets where it's so pure evil. And now large percentage of our population says it's a right it's a woman's right to choose it's a reproductive right no it's a living child that's being murdered still is what it is but that's the world you want a definition of the world system there you go or how about the beautiful institution that God created called marriage one man, one woman, joined together as one flesh. One in, in emotionally, spiritually, physically. It was a beautiful thing. In fact, it's so beautiful that God uses that illustration to describe his relationship to Israel. He called Israel his wife. And in the New Testament, God calls the church his bride. And that beautiful day when it says the bride of Christ, the marriage of feast of uh, supper of the Lamb, where we're going to witness where the church and Christ are one together. We're going to be like we're supposed to. We're going to be the real church then, not a, a fragment of, look, we love God, we love one another, but we're a dysfunctional family, folks. I hate to say it. If you don't think so, just look. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Pointing at me first, the, the head of dysfunctionalism here, uh, Professor Dysfunctionalism. Uh, but, and what have we done? We've taken the, the definition of marriage and said, oh no, it's two people who love one another. It's just two people. How can you deny people who love one another? How hateful that is, isn't it? How hate, that's the world. It's, it throws that trip on us and says, it's so hateful. How can you hate people who just want to be together? Because it's outside of God's will. That's why. 
two people, two men, two women, whatever it is. And what happens is it's a distortion of God's plan. And I'm in trouble. We're already 25 minutes into this thing. Okay, but this is going to be a two-part. I'd like to say welcome to part one today here. Uh, but think about, think about what, what that world system does. That's a picture of the world. It takes the truth of God and builds it upon error. It takes what is good and makes it evil. That's the world now. So what do we do with that? Well, the Bible makes it clear what we do with these things. We hate them. Remember, we hate the world, that system of evil opposed to God. We don't hate the people who are caught up in it, but we hate that system because it's fueled by Satan himself ultimately. And how does the Bible treat, uh, I'm saying to hate it, well, Psalm 97.10 says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. It's not my words, that's God's words. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Or how about Psalm 119.104 when the psalmist says, I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. He hates every wrong path. That word is used over and over in Psalm 163. I hate and abhor falsehood. And then he adds, but I love your law. I hate that falsehood. And I abhor it, he says, but I love your law, Lord. Uh, you know what, while I'm on this, I want to, uh, I'll skip it. Let's look at God for a minute. God himself hates. And I, I think sometimes Christians get uncomfortable with that. You know, you say, did you know that God hates? It's like, ooh. You know, after all, do you ever talk to some people who go a very liberal, they go, my God is a God of love. <laughs> oh, I, right away when somebody says that, I, I say, all right, let's, let me find out about their theology a little bit more, and it's usually not too orthodox. It's all just God loves everything. Well, if God loves everything, then he's evil because God hates evil, period. He cannot love what is bad, what is false, what is lies. It is absolutely against who he is himself and it's an offense to God those things uh, Amos 521 Amos God is speaking to the Israelites now listen to this one about their religious ceremonies this is in the name they're doing this in the name of God what has he said he says I hate, I abhor your religious feasts. He says, I cannot stand your assemblies. Can you imagine God saying, what if God came in here right now and he looks over at we've just worshipped and especially now I'm preaching and he looks over and he says, I hate 
I abhor your Sunday morning services. I can't stand when you assemble together. That's God saying that. He hates it. Why? Because it's contrary to what is good, what is pure, what God stands for. Uh, I'm going to continue with this, and then we'll do the other parts next week. Uh, think about a verse that everyone is, I think, very familiar with. Malachi 2.16. God says, I hate divorce. God hates it. That doesn't mean he doesn't forgive when people go through divorce. Many people do, unfortunately. But he also shows mercy and grace to those who repent. It's not the unpardonable sin, folks, just so you know that. The only unpardonable sin is rejecting the good God who he is, Jesus Christ. Rejecting him is, is the unpardonable sin. Uh, if you want to follow with me, I'm just going to go to, to Jeremiah chapter 44 for a minute because I, I, just, I want you to get... I don't want to over, overdo this, but I do... I want you to... I wish you could get the feel. I'm gritting my teeth as I'm saying this. But I wish you could get the feeling of how God feels toward those things that are of the world. He hates it. And guess what? God bless you. So should we. We should hate that. We shouldn't. We, Christianity today, I'm so afraid, and the church itself is always kind of being dabbling a little bit, you know, getting involved with things that the church should not get involved in or worldly ways or things as Christians that we can get so caught up in sometimes, things that we should hate. And we find it, it sparks something inside. It, it excites something inside. You know, people say, oh, pornography is evil. I hate it. And even the proponents of that could secretly be looking at a screen and having a fuel, fueling that desire inside. No one, is, no one is free from the temptations of this world because it's constantly our whole society. I, I'm just thinking about when I used to drive in Manhattan every week. Once a week I'd have to work in Manhattan. And there used to be these billboards. I, I never get the name right. It's a clothing company. Is it Abercrombie, right? Abercrombie and Fitch. I think that's the name of it. They would have ads that are, that are the closest thing to pornography that you could imagine. I mean, I, I'm not even going to describe what, what, some of these, what some of these ads have. I, and it was right before I got to the place where I would deliver, and I'd look at this and go, how is this possible? How is this possible that this is what our society loves, though? This is what sells clothes. You know, why are they such a big company? Because they appeal to people. This makes me sexy. This makes me good. And then on top of that, the, sometimes the billboards would not only have men and women together, you know, in poses and these look of the most neediest faces you've ever seen in your life, you know, for one another, just dripping with neediness like now 
And they were also doing it with two guys, with two girls. You know, in the past couple years, as we try, we're trying to normalize what God says I hate. Again, we're not talking about hating the people caught up in that. We're talking about the system behind it that is fueled by Satan, that is fueled by evil. Jeremiah 44. I'm going to start at verse 1 and just read the first four verses here. Jeremiah writes this. This word came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews living in Lower Egypt, in Migdal, Tapanes, and Memphis, and in Upper Egypt. This is, these are the people that survived that, that uh, fall of Jerusalem in 586 with Nebuchadnezzar, and they traveled down to Egypt. In fact, Jeremiah was taken there with them after 586. It's believed that he also went, and that's where he died. He was already a, an older man at that point. He had been prophesying for 40 years you know, since about 527, 526. So this is 40 years after that now. And he says in verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, you saw the great disaster I brought on Jerusalem and on all the towns of Judah. Today they lie deserted and in ruins because of the evil they have done. They provoked me to anger by burning incense and by worshiping other gods that neither they nor you nor your fathers ever knew. Now watch. Again and again I sent my servants, the prophets, who said, do not do this testable thing that I hate. God hates idolatry. He hates the worship of false gods. So God, I, I have so many more here, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to move from those. But... In the New Testament and Revelation, it's interesting that God writes to the church in Ephesus. He has John. If you remember, Jesus has John write to seven different churches in chapter 2 and 3 of, of uh, Revelation. And the first one is Ephesus. And he writes to them, and he first says to them, he says, you know, you guys have been doing a lot of good things. you got a lot of things on the ball. But then he says, but I hold this against you. He says, You've lost your first love. So their motivating fact for everything they're doing isn't for God. It's they got this nice, comfortable religion. We better watch out for that. That we're not, we're not losing our motivation because it's from, of loving God, but that we're just going through the motions. And it makes us feel good. You know, oh, look, the church, we're doing this, we're doing that. It doesn't necessarily, we have the right motives behind it and it's not being fueled by a right desire there. But he writes to the church and he first compliments and then he says, you, but you, I hold this against you. You've lost your first love. Then a little later on, he says, but he says, you have, he says, he's giving them a favor now, but in your favor that you have hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They were false teachers. Another heretical group, the Nicolaitans, were coming in there, and God says, he says, but you know what? You did something good here. You're protecting your doctrine, and you hate those who are bringing false doctrine to you. Not those people themselves, but that teaching of the Nicolaitans. He says, you hate that. All right. Uh, so let's go back to 1 John. I'll skip a lot. Yeah. 
in James. It's funny because the book of James, James, over and over again, up to chapter 4 in the first three chapters, he says, well, think about how does it start? Uh, Consider it pure joy, my dear brothers. You know, whenever you face trials of all kinds, he goes, but he says, my dear brothers. He says it again and again and again in the letter. He keeps it addressing my dear brothers. He gets to chapter 4, and he starts chapter 4 like this. You adulterous people, he says. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? He says, Anyone who is a friend of the world, he says, becomes an enemy of God. So if you're loving the things of this world and buying into all the false beliefs, all the things that are enticing, and all the, the beliefs that are being pushed on us in our society, he says, you're an enemy of God. That's pretty strong. He says it's hatred toward God. Why is it hatred toward God? Because it's sin. And what is sin? Hatred toward God. When you sin, you at that moment are hating God. And I'm not trying to be dramatic here and, you know, trying to put a guilt trip on. It's, ooh, this... It's true, because you reject God. When you choose sin, you reject God himself, and you become an atheist at that moment, literally, and say, you don't exist. I'm going to do my thing. And then, oh, God, I'm sorry. You know, that we, we, we have to be careful. That James is so strong on that, though. What does Jesus say? A principle he gives. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve, what? Two masters. Oh, I like that. Everybody started saying the verse. That's nice. That's wonderful. Everybody, one, two, f follow the bouncing. Remember follow, follow the bouncing ball? Does anybody remember that? One person. Oh, two. Okay, that's it. Have a good day. Okay. It's <laughs> they used to have where you, you sing along and you follow the bouncing ball going like that. Okay. Nothing like getting totally off the subject and just, what does that have to do with this message? Absolutely nothing. So let's get back to the message. Okay. Uh, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money, or mammon, some of your versions might say. Jesus makes it clear. He says, you can't be worshiping one thing and worshiping, and that's what he's talking about when he says no one can love two masters. You know, you can't, you can't have God. And He's not saying you can't have money. Everybody needs money to live. And money can also be a good thing, right? If we use it for good purposes. So if money, money has, is not evil or good. It depends on the way it's used. But Jesus says you can't have two masters. The human heart isn't big enough to hold two masters. It's only made to hold one, and that should be Jesus Christ. And those who are living in the world, those who are 
Those who are attracted to the world when he says, do not love the world. Why does he have to say that? Because even Christians want to get caught up in that. Oh, and I just thought it's a good thing I can end with, too, here when we're talking. We'll end with that in a moment. Okay. He says, and he's giving a principle there. You know what? Think about it. Uh, my, my mind, I can't remember the exact quote, but I remember hearing that Philo, who was an early philosopher, philo- of philosophy, he said, Philo was the one, if I can remember the gist of it, he said that light and darkness cannot coexist. That's what he, light and darkness cannot coexist. How is it possible? As soon as light gets to darkness, it's light. And if darkness comes over light, it's darkness. You know, you can't have two. You can't do it. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of the world. And if you're in the kingdom of God, you belong to Christ. And if you're in the kingdom of the world, you belong to Satan, ultimately. And that's what he's trying to stress this here. Uh, I want to give you one example of how we can be fooled. Uh, fooled or fooled by others, I should say. Maybe you've experienced this. Have you ever known somebody who you thought, sorry, I just saw you guys here, okay. <laughs> Have you ever experienced this where, where you've known somebody? Now I've got to make up time, excuse me. If, have you ever known somebody where, <laughs> where you thought they were a Christian? You believe that they were a Christian. In fact, they seemed like a strong Christian. And then all of a sudden, they fall away. And it's like, what happened to so-and-so? He was on fire for the Lord. He was just, and it seems like they just get lost in the world. Let me give you an example of that. Paul, Paul had a one, and I will close with this. Paul had a, an entourage, we could say, his posse. It was Paul's posse, okay, to use the, it, it just doesn't work, does it? An, an old man trying to be hip. No, I can't use that. It's, it's bad when you, say th- when you say things like that. You know, Paul had workers with him who were faithful. And they were with him throughout it. Luke is one of them. Dr. Luke was his physician and he was his co-worker. And Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Paul lists many names. And I want to, I want to show you something here. If you want to look so you can see it for yourself, so you know I'm not making this stuff up, go to Colossians, the book of Colossians, and go to chapter 4 for a minute. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll skip most of it and just go to uh, verse 12. In verse 12, chapter 4 of Colossians, Paul writes, Epaphras, who was one of you, he's writing to Colossians, Epaphras, if I can't say his name, Epaphras is probably the man who brought Christianity to Colossae, the town of Colossae, because Paul himself didn't go to Colossae, but it's believed that Epaphras was with Paul, and then he took the gospel back to Colossae, and the people, it grew into a church. 
And it says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Now watch. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas. Remember that name for a minute. And Demas, send greetings. Now go to Philemon, which is just a little like a postcard just before uh, Hebrews. And go to verse 23. Now these, probably when Paul wrote Colossians, it was probably about the same time around A.D. 60 when it was his first imprisonment in Rome. He had two, he was imprisoned twice. First he was imprisoned for two years under uh, house arrest. And then finally when he writes Timothy, which we're going to look at, he's in a dungeon, he's chained, and he's at the end of his life. But he writes again, look, uh, in verse 23, there's only one chapter in Philemon. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. Now, this fellow Demas, and we could go through Acts too, but just these two to give you an idea. Demas was a close worker with Paul. Paul has mentioned Demas along with uh, Epaphras and uh, Luke. So he was in good company, wasn't he? I mean, he was kind of part of that solid ministry circle of Paul. Now go to 2 Timothy. And you can go to chat if you can go to chapter 4. Paul is writing this, like I said, he's now, this is his second imprisonment. He's in Rome. He's in a, a dungeon. He's isolated by himself. He's chained. In fact, later on, he says, uh, he says, call for Timothy. Tell Timothy to bring my cloak. Why? Because he's cold in there. It's damp and cold in that prison. Paul is an old man at this point. And he's probably, you know, in his 60s. And I'm sorry, folks, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm there, I'm an old man, but he's, he's there and he's, he's asking for these things. It's, very, it's almost sad. He says, could you bring me a cloak? Would you bring me my, my scrolls and the parchments, he says. But look what he says in verse 19 as he's ending this. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household. Oh, I lost my spot, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 9, I should say, verse 9. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas because he loved this world has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. How is that possible? Demas working with Paul, working with Luke, working with Epaphras and all these men, following with Paul and ministering in the God, in this this incredible evangelistic ministry of Paul. He's in the other letters. He's with Paul. And all of a sudden, he says, 
for Demas because why? He loved this world. He was drawn there. He has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, why did he go to Thessalonica? We don't know for sure. Thessalonica was a, a, a very large city. It was on the crossroads of trade routes. I, think it, I believe it had maybe 200,000 people in it. And it was a very worldly place. You kind of get lost in there and just, just be part of what's happening. So what's the message so far? Well, on this part, be careful. Watch that the world's messages don't start to slip in. Don't start, or some of the world's ways get in. And you know what? Some great ways that the world really affects us. Music. Listen to the words of music that is popular today. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Back in the middle 90s, when I, I was running the youth center, I had some, one of the kids come to me. He said, Pastor Walter, I want you to listen to this. And he was doing it because he knew it was bad and he wanted to give me, and I used to be, I used to be glad when kids would kind of give me info. You know, I was in my, I was in my 40s then, my middle 40s, you know. I wasn't that much in touch with the culture of what's happening. I've tried to be now. And anyway, he played something for me from Tupac Shakur called Hit Him Up. And don't even bother to look it up now because he played something for me. I said this was the most violent, filthy, disgusting thing. And this was the kids were listening to this stuff. How do you think that influences kids when they're walking? I can remember going into Brooklyn, especially I'd see it, and I'd see kids walking, and they'd be, they'd be mouthing the words. They'd have their thing on and mouthing all these rap songs like it was, you know, imagine if they were memorizing Bible verses. Not, I'm not trying to be, I mean, those are extremes. I realize that, but just something good. I, I remember about, I don't know, six, five, six years ago, I, after I would deliver, I'd come back to the warehouse, and I'm, work, I'm loading my truck for the next morning with some guys. And that day, I happened to be listening to the radio. They always had like a, or a musac in the background, the piped-in music, in the, which I have no I, I don't know why they do that, why we just can't work without having entertainment, but they did. And that day, I happened to notice the song that was playing by a guy named Meatloaf. Anybody remember Meatloaf? <laughs> yeah, Meatloaf. I, I realized once why they call him Meatloaf. I saw a picture of him. He looked like a Meatloaf. He had onions coming out of his ears, breadcrumbs in his nose. He was disgusting. But anyway, uh, I shouldn't say that about Meatloaf. That's, who has the name Meatloaf anyway? Yeah, whatever his name is. But that's what he calls himself, Meatloaf. But the song, the, the, as a musician, we used to call it the release. Now it's the hook that everybody refers to. And the hook is, I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. Now think about that part for a minute. I want you. I need you, 
but there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. Now, the topper. But don't be sad, because two out of three ain't bad. Is that the creepiest, rottenest, stinking song I ever heard? That really, I mean, it's not as bad as the Tupac song, but and I'm thinking, and if that creep ever came to my house and wanted to take my daughter out, I'd punch his face. And as a Christian, I'd grab him by the neck and strangle him and say, don't you come near my daughter. Think, I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. Is that the epitome of selfishness? I'm going to use you. Why doesn't he just say it? I'm going to use you without any commitment. He says, but he says, don't feel bad. Hey, I want you and I need you. I don't need to love you. I mean, think about that message. And what gets me is you, you see the concerts and people are going, I want you, I need you. You know, the people are waving, whatever they're doing. I don't know why. Why do people do this? They're all going, and they're all like in a trance and they're, they're singing these disgusting words, really, if you think about them. This is the message of the world. But the world is penetrating us by this. I won't even go into television, movies, all kinds of entertainment. And as Christians, we really need to review and say, is this good for me? Is this what Christ, this, does this honor Christ? You know, whether it's horror movies, whether it's violence, whether it's, you know, just a movie about people who love one another and sleep all over the place and things like that. Is that really good for us? You know, and you know, gets the mind fantasizing and stuff. These are, these, are the, these are the attractions of the world, and this is what God hates, it says. Why? Because it, it's everything, it's the antithesis of Christianity, of the message of Christ. Okay. Uh, sorry, Nick. He's raring to go over there. Okay. Now, what, what does this mean when you're going like this? <laughs> <laughs> He's going like that, though. <laughs> no, I should not. Nick is, is one of the most gentlest, godly, patient men, yes. And this is why I can abuse him like this. I get this. <laughs> All right, listen, we'll continue next week. But please be aware, are you letting the world influence you? Are you letting the message that is totally against what God preaches are you embracing that at times and even maybe even getting a little excitement from it? Beware. You know, think about, uh, you think about Demas. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful, lest you fall. He says, nobody, none of us is above, is above these temptations. It's only with with our eyes upon Christ and the word of God in our hearts that we can fight this and be what God wants us to be. All right, I'm going to give the service over to Nick at this point.